Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. All right, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal with your host Adam Sane, and we've got uh, Mr. Robbie Lins here in the house. How's it going, guys? We don't have Luke tonight. So we are we are Luke less, as I often like to say. Uh, just <coughs> going to do an interview tonight with uh, Tracy Twyman, and what we're going to be talking about is her book Clock Shavings, and also want to talk about a little about the. Merovingian mythos and the Priory of Sion, and uh, when we come back, we'll probably have an email to read after the show. But uh, Rob, you did get a chance to listen to a little bit of the last show, which uh, you weren't here for the last show, so you didn't get to hear the uh, Doctor Fetzer's show. But no, no, I caught. I've listened to the first half of it so far, and it was just starting to get into some some interesting. Like I was following really well up until about the point where. I had to kind of stop and get back to work where right. I was, but definitely, uh, definitely an interesting character. Uh. Yeah, um, we kind of addressed a little bit of, at the end of that show about the Holocaust denial, that uh, the little part that happened like towards the beginning, and it kind of shook me up a little bit. Um, I've really kind of respected Dr. Fetzer a lot, and just to hear that really made me just made my heart sink a little bit 
uh, to be honest with everybody out there, I mean, I, I, as someone that studied the Holocaust, uh, I've really have studied it, and I just don't see how anybody could say that there's any way that uh, it did not happen. Um, I don't know about the whole Zycon B thing or anything like that, but uh, next week I've kind of got uh, Craig Ciccone. I've got him on tap to come in, and to, we're going to try to talk a little bit about um, the kind of like the proofs for the holocausts and just kind of get a different a perspective rebuttal. on it yeah nice uh you know nothing against dr fetzer he's definitely tired to entitled to his views and i thought everything else that he said was was really interesting it's just not going to hold up too much when you start off talking about how maybe the holocaust didn't happen <laughs> so yeah but those are things that are going to come up and those are ideas that are out there and Right, and well, so be it. And we should question everything, but yeah. we also have to take kind of with a grain of salt, and especially touchier subjects. <laughs> right. Yeah, and that's a, that's a pretty touchy subject, and I'd say a pretty emotional subject too. But For sure, I'd say in my own studies that I could say that, that definitely that uh, that it happened. But anyway, uh, we do have Tracy Twyman coming on, um, hopefully here in a little bit, and. Uh, our mer- our merriment factor is down a little bit since we don't have Mr. Luke, but uh, we'll try to soldier on as best we can. I know there's all those Luke fans out there and with his love his childish <laughs> antics. So, uh, but uh, we'll be right back, guys. Uh, we'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal. All right, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal, and uh, we are here, uh, me and Robbie. As I said before, no Luke. Uh, and on the line we have uh, Tracy Twyman. Um, and Tracy is has a book out called uh, Clock Shavings, which is probably uh, going to be one of the most interesting books that I've, I've ever read. I actually uh, heard an interview with you, Tracy, on the Higher Side Chats uh, quite a few months ago. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to try to get you on then. And uh, had some other kind of like work things come up, I think, for the both of us. And so finally have uh, been able to get you on. Uh, But what I want to kind of do before we go into talk about clock shavings is to talk a little bit about kind of what your your specialty is, is the whole, or I guess guess the lack of a better term, the whole... uh, Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code, uh, I guess, slash the Merovingian mythos, the Priory of Sion. And, of course, this is what kind of led you into um, the experiences that you had that you recount in Clock Shavings. So I want to kind of talk about uh, the mythology behind that and what the Priory of Sion is and what that's all about. I do have some questions for you about that as well. Okay. Yeah, I uh, I wouldn't say that's my specialty per se anymore. It definitely was in the beginning. That is how I started my um, career gotcha. as a you know esoteric, I guess. And I was about eighteen years old when I started doing that, and wow. that lasted for a long time because I started this magazine, Dagobert's Revenge. Um, for it started out as a kind of a joke, basically an art experiment, but then it turned out to uh, turn to real journalism and real uh, discoveries of, uh, you know, esoteric secrets of history. And then it ended up lasting from 1996 to, what was it, 2003 or 2004. So it was like nine or ten years of my life there uh, that I spent writing about that stuff. Then, as you you mentioned, I I wrote the book, The Merovingian Mythos, which kind of summed up all the 
uh, research I had done during those years. So uh, definitely that was kind of my focus in the beginning. And when Da Vinci Code came out, which was around the time the Dagger Bear's Revenge was ending, um, it kind of overblew the whole subject. And by that time, I had the, my my research, as I guess I'll explain in this interview, you know, had basically broadened or gotten into, I guess, deeper subjects. So, you know, gotcha. since then I've been writing about other stuff. But yeah, I mean, um, well, go ahead and ask whatever questions you want to on that, that topic. Well, uh, well, the main question for me is, um, and it may be getting a little bit more into it um, than to talk about the basics, it, is I always... You know, I was into the whole Holy Blood, Holy Grail thing when I was growing up. I was like a teenager. Mm-hmm. I thought it was really interesting stuff. Um, later on, um, I came to find out that the Priory of Sion and the the books that was all like was described to me as being like a huge hoax that right. some guys in France had pulled off in the 1950s. And I guess my main question is on that is if that's is that true? Was that was it a hoax, or was it something deeper? Well, I don't think that has ever really been proven. Um, okay. Partially because the whole thing has really been blown up by the people who wrote about it. So I can't say that one hundred percent you could blame the characters who were involved in the Priory of Zion in the nineteen fifties, uh, which is for sure something you know that existed. Uh, I can't. I'm not sure if you can blame them for the way that their group was portrayed in uh, the writings of people that were writing nonfiction books about it and stuff at the time. So there was a, a guy named Gerard de Sed in France, right. um, like late 70s, wrote some books about it and really started to get the whole subject popular because he's the one who connected. He said that there was this group called the Priory of Zion. He had found their uh, writings published, uh, deposited in a library in France. And it was like, you know, there was only that one copy there, but it was implied that there were, it said, you know, it says on the front cover or the inside cover of these magazines that he found published by Priory of Zion, uh, would say like how many copies there were supposedly in existence. So, uh, you know, you don't even know if if there ever really was a circulation of these magazines or was there just this one deposited in the library or not. You don't know. But anyway, this guy wrote about uh, what he found, you know, he found these clues basically that seem to have been left for someone to discover uh, in the library. And then those, those clues point to a mystery in southern France, in this, this um, village of rennes chateau where there's definitely in that village, there's, there's rumors about this priest that um, used to uh, be in charge of the, the little church there in the village and how he uh, discovered some treasures followed some mysterious clues he found in the church then he uh discovered a treasure and no one knows what the treasure was but somehow he got wealthy and then he himself deposited his own clues for other people to find by um redecorating the church so this whole story um really got put together by gerard de said he was following to a certain extent clues that he found but uh i would say he was very influential in deciding how to interpret that information and i guess you can say that the members of the priory of zion were guilty of playing up to that reputation that they were given and uh so they never you know uh, when they would be interviewed by people who were writing about them there was gerard de said and then later there were these english writers uh who wrote holy blood holy grail in the 80s when these writers were writing about them uh 
frequently in the interviews, uh, Pierre Plantard was like one of the main spokesmen uh, who was supposedly the grandmaster. They would so often just say yes or no answers or, or very cryptic answers, if any at all, to the questions that were posed. And the, po- the questions were always very leading questions. And the reason why is understandable is because the, all the writers – you know, had been doing what probably you and I did instinctively when we first started reading about it. You you immediately, you know, start thinking about how to how to put together all these mysterious clues. And so once you get um, your own theory going, you know, you want to find out if you're right or not. So it's very easy to see how these writers came up with very interesting theories based on the clues they found. And then they interviewed the people from the Priory. And they weren't told anything that uh, disproved their theories. In fact, they were given more clues that tantalized them and made them think, well, I'm really on the right track. So even though uh, I guess there were three authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and that book got really popular in the 80s and really blew the subject up. Yeah, extremely, yeah. And two of them kind of went on to write about other things, but Henry Lincoln was uh, the third author, and he basically continued to write about the mystery of Renly Chateau, at least, for the rest of his life. And uh, go ahead. I want to ask about um, about Plantard, and (laughs) I've heard that he was actually shocked when the Holy Blood Holy Grail came out because Mm -hmm. he 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 had never said well we we never said anything about being descendants of Jesus or anything like that like he just basically said that that they had taken this story. And just come up with some conclusion that really had nothing to do with anything that 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 they were doing or trying to accomplish. Yeah, I would say that that was a bit of a leap that the um, yeah. the authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail really made. Even more than Gerard de Set, I don't think he was the one who would propose that at all. So, uh, they, they right. there were some clues indicating that, and definitely there is a um, hermetic tradition, and you could you can look at other books like Julius Igvola's uh, Mystery of the Grail. I think that was written in the 40s or the 30s, something like that, earlier in the century, you know, and uh, okay. he talks about how there's this um, tradition of the Grail family, and he ties it in to uh, the idea of Jesus a little bit, the idea of Jesus having a family. So it's not that it's not unthinkable that they would have come to that conclusion, but there's like other, definitely other ways to interpret it. And I would say for sure, Priory of Zion seems to me to be very similar to other, uh, tiny secret societies, tiny hermetic groups of people that do, uh, divination and magic together and study esoteric, uh, texts together. And, uh, I figure that that's what they were probably doing. Um, whether or not they were connected to the, um, you know, in, in their in their writings, uh, in their own magazines, they do sort of kind of claim that uh, their organization is a continuation of an earlier organization started in the Middle Ages, and that right. uh, that in itself is also connected to the Knights Templar. In fact, they say the Templars were, you know, the military arm of their more powerful organization, Order of Sion, it was called at the time. Uh, well... You know, it's pretty impossible to verify that. And even in their own publications, there were different versions of their ancestry. So that, but then again, that is all typical of secret societies, specifically Western occult societies. Almost all of them somehow or another try to tie their own 
the genealogy of their group to the Templars. You know, they try to say that they're the continuation of the Templars. So somehow to make themselves bigger than they actually really are. Well, kind of. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's a, it's traditional to do that, I guess. But also, I don't necessarily think it's untrue to a certain extent. And here's why. And and I guess this kind of gets into clock shavings or the the uh, the ideas behind it. Um. Basically, I, I discovered through my accident, through my own uh, meddling with um, uh, diabolic subjects, with uh, divination and things like that, I discovered that you can uh, contact beings from somewhere else. Uh, I mean, I don't know where they're from exactly, but uh, they say they're from the abyss or, you know, they might say they're from the heavens. You can contact beings from outside of this plane and talk to them. I did it on the Ouija board. Uh, there's other ways of doing it. And... Uh, from what I can tell, this is the genesis of a lot of these secret societies. I mean, sure, you can if you want to form a club and call it a secret society and have write your own rituals. And I guess it counts as a secret society, but um, which I, I tried to do that myself. When we were doing Dagobert's Revenge, I created a secret society around the publication in, involving the people that were involved in the magazine and you know, dedicated to the study of the subject's the magazine was about but what happened when i made the contact with the beings from outside <coughs> is everything just really got real all of a sudden and uh <coughs> i would say that's when my secret society became something else you know it, it had a, um, a mind of its own almost it definitely had a spiritual direction that was beyond me at that point uh, yeah so that makes perfect cool. sense so i think that yeah. you know priory of zion could have been a product of that as well i definitely the templars were because they said you know it, their own confessions when they were arrested and tortured they said you know it was all about this being called baphomet that they uh contacted and uh did rituals around and it gave them wisdom and uh, that uh was enabled them to become wealthy and to build the empire that they built so i think that anyone who does that anyone who can connect with the same intelligence that ran the Knights Templar, for instance. If you can do that, well, then you are continuing the tradition of the Templars. So I don't think it's necessarily wrong if the Priory of Zion wants to say that or if the OTO wants to say that. And uh, it's just, a you know, you can say that um, sometimes the way that they portray that ancestry uh, seems fictional. But really, how else? You can't... You can't just say to the profane audience. You just can't say it bluntly and, and go right out and say, "Hey, I, you know, this information, this information we're getting comes from beings, uh, you know, that you can't see, and <laughs> and that that's the right. reason why we're connected to the Templars." Instead, you have to right. in a different way, and it's a, it's more of a. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's more of a spiritual um, pedigree than it is maybe a genetic one. Yeah, I or was, a historical one. Yeah. It's 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 not necessarily wrong to tell fables when you're uh, describing sacred things or things that are too hard to, to comprehend, or also things that just the mass of people won't comprehend, things that only initiated people will comprehend. It's it's t it's a uh, traditional really to put it in the form of a, a story or a parable that has a metaphor to it that. Uh, you know, maybe not everyone will get at first, but, uh, um, you know, that's really the only way you can say certain things. So I don't know. I'm not necessarily apologizing for the Priory of Zion. They might, you know, be shysters. I don't know. But I, I'm saying that you can inter you can see how it happened that way. You know, they ha they're a secret society. This is the way that secret societies tend to operate. And then they had a journalist come along 
who just bought every you know bought everything they were saying at face value, and <laughs> yeah. then also you know went beyond that and interpreted things that weren't even necessarily there, and they just played up to it because they had a international audience all of a sudden, and you know and there is interesting things about the members of the priory, the ones that were running around. Uh, being interviewed and and be, and were friends with the people that were being interviewed uh, for those books, the Holy Blood, Holy Grail books. Um, a lot of those people really do have interesting backgrounds, and you know you can connect them to people involved in intelligence and people uh, involved in um, royal families that are connected to the Mer- Merovingian, you know, the the Grail bloodline that those authors were writing about. So um, yeah. <clears throat> even if it's a hoax or I don't know, so that, you know, even if they were toying with the audience a little bit. Um, there there were some links, I believe, between Plantard and, and his little circle, and I think like the P2 mafia in, in Italy. For sure. Um, uh, he was involved, I think, with, uh, he was part of the French Resistance, I believe, in World War Two, and had some kind of, he had some kind of quasi-fascist overtones of some of his work. Mm-hmm. And then there's uh, groups like, um, there's this thing called Rectified Scottish Rite. It seems to be a form of Martinism. All, both of those things also are quasi-Masonic groups um, that are all centered in Western Europe, particularly France. So, and when you, lo- when, when you look up some of the other names, okay, there's the, there was this movie I was in, uh, Bloodline, and they interviewed this guy called Nick Haywood, who claimed to be part of the Priory. And they also interviewed this guy named Gino Sandri, a Frenchman who said he was part of the Priory. And okay. uh, Gino Sandri can be connected to all of the all of the um, same characters that were being interviewed for Holy Blood, Holy Grail. So he's really definitely part of the same milieu as, uh, as those guys. And he, when you look up his name and really do deep searching to try to figure out who he is and, and any trace of what he's done in the past, you find that he's co-author to a bunch of um, hermetic books published by uh, very obscure Masonic lodges and also a Martinist lodge, and uh, that he's also an artist. And several of the characters involved with the, the Priory of Zion, you know, the ones that were being interviewed for Holy Blood, Holy Grail, several of those guys were artists also, and and particularly <coughs> involved in sort of modern, uh, you know, surrealist, Dadaist kind of art. And uh, there's even a, a tradition amongst those types in France there, a, a, a sort of a surrealist French artist, of creating hoaxes, um, writing cryptic things and doing cryptic art and trying to make make it mysterious and trying and publishing it and trying to get people to read into it and, uh, uh, you know, try to get people involved in decrypting whatever your artwork is. And, and you don't even necessarily tell people that it's a work of art or that, you know, it's not necessarily a joke either. It's like, um, it could be, there could be something ritualistic to this. In other words, if they're purposely putting out, uh, false or misleading information in a cryptic way, putting out clues for people to follow. It could be both an art project and also a ritual. Um, kind of reminds me of the Discordian Society a little bit. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, exactly. And so we don't necessarily know what the goal is, and maybe we'll never know because it also could be just between them and their outer head, between them and their uh, spiritual mentors, the the beings that they're in contact with. Maybe they were instruction instructed to to create certain images and say certain phrases. Uh, you you know you may never know why it's all part of the ritual and maybe they don't even know why um so you know that's that's the kind of stuff i can see possibly going on here uh with the mystery of rinlay chateau and the uh, and all the clues put out by the priory of zion and i never would have thought that of course i took i myself was a very serious researcher of this subject and didn't take that approach to researching it until the very end after yeah. I had experienced it myself, after I had made contact with beings from outside and had them give me instructions about what I should publish. And there were times when I didn't even understand the meaning of it. You know, I was given specific words and phrases to use and I didn't even know why. And sometimes I would do that and it would have a, it would seem to have a particular magical effect. Uh, well, let, go ahead. Well, let's get into that. Let's get into, um, Basically, the 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 what is in clock shavings. Okay. Um, it, it, this contact with um, otherworldly entities through through the Ouija board. Yeah. Uh, you had set up. To, you had set out to uh, originally, I believe, to contact. Uh, and I might totally just screw the French here, but uh, Jean Cocteau. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. He's uh, one of these artists. He was he was a member of the Priory of Zion, supposedly. Right. And had actually lived right before this time period when these um, materials were being published. In fact, he was still alive until 63, so he could have totally yeah. been involved with the publishing of those uh, magazines that I talked about. And yeah, uh, so we were trying to contact him, and uh, that's how this whole thing got started. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Sorry. Go ahead. What was the purpose of contact? Why, why specifically him did you want to contact? Was he just feel like he had maybe had passed away relatively recently? And maybe you were able to would, would have been able to contact him. No, was it, it was just more like a lark that you guys maybe just thought you know this will be fun to do. Or well, what, it was a lark in a way, but um, basically, I had just moved to Denver, which whereas where uh, one of my writing partners was uh, living at the time, and I actually met up with my other research partner Brian, the guy who I ended up marrying. Um, he had been living in Portland where we had like gone to school together and then we, I moved away, but we all met together in Denver finally that year, which was 2001. And uh, so I moved in with Brian. He was my roommate down the street was this other writer we were working with. And, uh, that at that particular time we were preparing a whole issue of, uh, articles for Dagobert's revenge magazine that were going to be about Jean Cocteau because I had been researching a lot of his paintings, his poems and his films in particular. And I saw things that indicated that maybe he was part of the priory Zion and that it was real. The, the claim was real. And in fact, that maybe, you know, he was putting out cryptic clues himself in his own artwork and writing. Um, so, you know, I wanted to, find out more about that. And when I read his biography, one of the things it said was that he had been involved with a circle of people, including Victor Hugo. And I think her name was Jean Hugo, his wife. Um, 
and some uh, some other artists and writers they would have seances they would do what was called table wrapping back then because the the uh commercially produced Ouija board hadn't been made yet and uh yeah. so people were doing table wrapping which is um kind of you're listening for knocks on a table literally and uh however many knocks there are that tells you what letter of the alphabet to use called and, the era uh, of spiritualism yeah yeah and it was you know much more uh long drawn out and painful process to divine a message than the ouija board uh but anyway people did that back then and uh uh cocteau was way into it and you know we say received some uh very i guess impactful messages that really moved him and he, he thought it was real the communication was real and in fact once you realize that you start looking at his paintings and uh, especially his, his films like testament of orpheus especially which is what he did the film he made i think the year he died or right before the year he died um which was like a retrospective on his life and it was sort of saying goodbye to everyone because he could tell he was about to die i think hmm. um and so when you w- look at that film it too is about communication from beyond and uh oh even even the 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 film that it's kind of based on which is orpheus he made earlier in his life which is based on the myth of orpheus well that's about journeying to the underworld you know because the main character's wife dies and so he want, he actually has to go to the underworld to try to get her back from death uh and the way that he it all starts off with the guy um he's a the, the character in the movie is a poet which you know as i said john cocteau himself is also a poet he, that actually that's what he considered to be his main uh talent and yeah. uh, so in the movie orpheus um the poet is actually getting his inspiration from this radio he's able to turn tune into a particular station on his radio and the station is broadcasting all of these strange messages. He doesn't know what they mean, but they're poetic, he thinks. Uh, so he writes them down and publishes them and becomes famous because of it. Well, uh, the messages, it turns out, are actually coming from Hades. They're coming from the underworld. So, uh, and, you know, all, that really is a clue. Interesting. The, where he was getting his inspiration from. And so all this moved me uh, after I just moved in with my writing, or one of my research partners, Brian. Uh, we were unpacking our stuff, and he pulled out a Ouija board from one of his boxes. And okay. so we decided to – sorry, it was a long story, but basically this no, is how it right. started. Yeah. And so, you know, we started that night and uh, immediately got what I would say is a response. It didn't it didn't take even a second. We put the a little glass bottle on top of this board. And it started moving in a way that I could tell I was not moving it and he wasn't moving it. It was something else coming through. And even though the messages in the beginning weren't very useful, um, I, I was just impressed that it was working at all. And he definitely was t- he was telling us something. He just wasn't able to speak English very well. So uh, it took a few tries, actually, um, to get anything at all out of it it's all in the book i I write down what some of the messages were that did come through and one of it was i am blocked for you and he was saying i'm having a hard time talking and eventually we we did sessions over several different nights and eventually he was able to tell us that we need to talk to someone else and so who he told us to talk to was kane or he also called him the black sun and it turned out this is some a a subject or a figure that we had been researching a bit anyway. And uh, we thought that he was tied into the subject of the grail and the grail bloodline. 
So we did, in fact, then go talk to Cain. And, and by that, I do mean the, uh, the villain of the Bible. Right, the biblical Cain, the one that slew Abel. Uh, how was he... Now, I've heard, you know, kind of in the... Um, kind of versed into, like, the kind of like the Christian world, uh, kind of like fringe evangelical Christian world, and there is this idea in that world, and I'm not saying that I necessarily agree with it, but the idea of the serpent seed theory. Right. And so I found it interesting in your book that uh, it was it was basically supporting that theory somewhat. We've actually had... Um, Scotty Roberts on, and he's talked about that in one of uh, in one of our interviews with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, how does that fit into the to the Grail? Do you see that he would be like the beginning of the Grail lineage? Yeah, that's that is what I would say. And you know, it, I started off looking at that angle mainly because of the writings of L. A. Waddell, who's this um, old Sumeriologist and you know, uh, Orient Orientalist, as they called it back then. Uh, he was writing around the 1920s when the finds from Mesopotamia were first coming out. And they were first finding, you know, for instance, evidence of, you know, the writings and civilization of Sumeria. And so, you know, granted, he was writing when academia hadn't had a lot of time to really take that information in and study it. So he, he was studying fresh information and forming his own theories about it. He was one of these guys that likes to put everything together. And he uh, also thinks that, um, that there was a greater civilization in the past that, you know, the, the um, evidence has been forgotten. But he, he was one of these guys that thinks that there was this great uh, race of you know conquerors and uh, civilizers, and he called them Aryans, like uh, an Atlantis almost. Yeah, and they went around sort of um, invading and conquering, and then civilizing all of this, uh, I guess, more primitive peoples, and created a giant empire. And uh, you know he he takes in the king's list for the Sumerians, which of course goes back thousands of years. And so the, the kings themselves would reign for thousands of years, supposedly. Uh, he yeah, that, that, that stuff's crazy. It's like 36,000 years for a reign of one king. Right. So, okay, so he was doing a lot of what Zachary Sitchin was writing about, really, but uh, he wasn't theorizing about rocket ships or anything like that. He was just yeah. saying you know, <laughs> gotcha. all these uh, <laughs> stories about these, these uh, from these ancient civilizations and their their what they say were their first kings, and a lot of times they say basically they're gods, and gods came down, first ruled them directly, and eventually they bred with humans and created a race of demigods, and those became the first human kings. And that's how the beginning is with so many of these civilizations. So you find the same thing in, you know, Egypt and Sumer and, you know, uh, a lot of these other, the Indian stories as well. Um, so, yeah, in, anyway, Genesis L.A. Waddell... Exactly. Oh, okay. So L.A. Waddell talks about that a little bit, but he wasn't trying to get too supernatural, I think. So the way he was viewing it, you know, he was saying, oh, these stories in the Bible are just another version of this ancient history that uh, that has been forgotten. And so he's he viewed it as these were some really advanced people who were viewed as gods or angels, uh, you know, by less advanced people. Well, um, 
so anyway, but one of the first kings or most important kings he thinks is Cain. So the, the figure that's identified as Cain in the Bible is actually matching up with this figure that you can find in the king's lists of these ancient civilizations and where he's described as Khan or Ken. And, uh, you know, Waddell went to a great uh, deal of trouble to try to connect the, at least the first few of these kings to the biblical patriarchs and also to, you know, all the, all the uh, gods or demigods of all these ancient cultures. He came up with, you know, his own chronology where he sort of rewrites history uh, in a way that he thinks makes sense. But what I found was intriguing. I didn't necessarily believe everything Waddell was saying, but I I I thought I think he's kind of up going down the right path here. And the figure of Cain, it really st- struck me as important and uh, if I could uh find out more about him he might actually be the uh, the origin of this grail bloodline because i could tell from researching the clues of you know that the priory of zion had left and also the grail stories themselves the grail romances where they do talk about a grail bloodline again uh, i could tell that the whole theory of them this uh being started with jesus and mary magdalene that just wasn't it you know that they may be involved it's possible they may be part of the bloodline but i really felt like the myths surrounding the Merovingians, for instance, that that pointed to something else, that it, it was really similar to these more ancient stories about the origins of, of human kings, where they said that the human kings came from gods or angels breeding with humans. And in fact, the story of how the Merovingian bloodline started is that supposedly the progenitor of the bloodline um, was the result of a fusion of human blood with that of some inhuman creature called a kinetar. Right. So something from the ocean or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. A sea creature, yeah. a sea bull. So, uh, I just thought that it was a clue. Of course the people who wrote Holy blood, Holy grail thought, Oh, that means fish. And that means Jesus. But I think that's not it. I think it's really about this bloodline, uh, that can be traced back to these ancient gods or angels. And a lot of times the ancient gods would themselves be depicted as fish. So the Sumerians, for instance, would would depict, they had, you know, fish gods or, or gods that were associated with the ocean and water. And um, there were rituals of baptism and the priests would be wearing these, uh, basically it looks like they, t- they gutted a fish and put it on top of their head and the... the tail is going down their back and that's like their ritual garb that the priests would wear when they're servicing the gods and the mouth of the fish would be on top of their head so there's a theory actually that a lot of the christian rituals come from this and that's why the pope's hat looks the way it is is because it really comes from this ancient fish head that priests used to wear and that's why we do baptism is because they did so interesting um, yeah, anyway, uh, I felt like, well, this is probably what these myths are about, that the French stories of the Grail and even these mo- modern um, esoteric societies like the Priory of Zion, what mysteries are they really celebrating but the origin of royal bloodlines with whatever these gods are? And I think that's, you know, I still think that's true. Um, so I was researching with that sort of assumption in my mind. 
And Kane seemed like he was a very central figure. In fact, you know, Waddell himself and several other writers I found had said that Kane's name is connected to the origin of the word king. And uh, so, oh, and then there's this other thing, which I, I don't even know if I knew back then, uh, but I found out that that the a lot of the European witches, particularly witchcraft covens that... Um, involved people from which families because there would you know for generations sometimes in in western europe and and england there would be families of witches there still are people who claim to be of families of witches and they would say that their powers of witchcraft come from their blood uh and they would say that they're you know they all share an ancestry going back to cain and then they have these stories myths that match up with actually cabalistic stories about uh Cain and Lilith, uh, another a demon from the uh, Judeo-Christian t- tradition, uh, that they you know had children uh, that were sort of quasi-demonic human beings, uh, and that the, you know all the all the real witches, all the wit- witches by blood, are actually the children of these beings. So um, anyway, yeah, it seems like uh, it seemed to me like Cain was an important figure. And in fact, you know, so we contacted Kane on the Ouija board. And that is when we really started to get some powerful messages, I would say. You know, I, I told you that Jean Cocteau had a hard time talking and Kane didn't have a hard time talking at all. So, uh, yeah, no problem for him. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, he started telling us all sorts of stuff, actually, about uh, ancient history and um, about these myths and stories from the Bible and from other cultures. So, yeah, go ahead. I mean, well, surely you have well, what did, <laughs> Sorry. What did he tell you about about ancient cultures? And also, too, you know, as, as you relate in the book, um, this, this kind of relationship between not just Cain and Abel, but also Cain as opposed to Adam and Eve and the third son, which is Seth. Mm-hmm. And also there's – and it gets real complicated at one point that – that there's a possibility that we may actually be dealing with the same bloodline or two different bloodlines because there's so many different similar sounding names. Yeah, and I don't really even still know what the truth of that yeah. is, but I went through several different theories as I was researching it. Um, so, first of all, I would say one of the most interesting things he told us was about the Garden of Eden itself and how it ended. So... He told us basically this epic story. It felt like we were just downloading a, uh, you know, like the Odyssey or something. We, or like we Lord build, of the Rings or yes, something. Yeah. exactly. It was very much like uh, Lord of the Rings. We could build a whole religion around just this one Ouija board session with all the stuff he told us. So he said that Garden of Eden was actually, you know, the home seat of this empire, similar to what L.A. Waddell described. He's, and um, Kane was saying, it's the same as Atlantis. So, like, a lot of the people that used to write books about Atlantis, uh, they would say, uh, you know, Atlantis was a an island uh, populated by children of the gods, children of Poseidon, uh, as the, who were the, the rulers, and then and they had this very advanced society, and they they also conquered the people around them, and there was this this vast empire. Well, he was saying Garden of Eden is the same thing, or Eden, and and that in, at Eden there was a throne, 
that was the seat of power for that whole empire. Um, the throne itself, he actually described as being connected to this thing called the Ark, which eventually got described as being sort of the vessel that holds the sacred power, whatever that is. But it's it's the power that you know gives them their their right to rule, I guess. Whoever has the Ark, he described, whoever has the Ark has the power and the right to rule. Um, and he also he described it as the one box of things. And eventually huh. I came to in- interpret that as, it's you know, whatever's inside of it, it's kind of like the Philosopher's Stone. Uh, right. It, like it has this transformative magical power. You can You can make whatever you want to happen, basically, once you have control of whatever that is. So he says the that Holy Grail itself, right? I mean, uh, yeah. Yes, exactly. He said it was the same thing. So um he tells us this story about how he his I guess he was saying that like uh the his own children were the rulers of some of these outlying um nations, you know, that were part of the empire. And that they eventually uh, rebelled against his rule, and they were trying to get the Ark, and they wanted to take control over the whole empire themselves. And so he described how there was this huge war about that, and that that is what caused the sinking of Atlantis. That's what caused the fall from the garden, and that's why you can't see the garden anymore, because the garden actually, or at least a large portion of Eden, collapsed. He actually described it as going under the waves, and he also hmm. he identified certain land masses that got assumed underneath uh, waves, and he said how that happened. Okay, first he says the, that the war there was this war with fought with swords and axes, and you know lots of just bloodshed and people killing each other, and then uh, eventually he he became so angry about the whole thing that he did a magic ritual or some sort of alchemical ritual. He called it the Wrath of Cain, and said that uh, he you know, caused this flood to happen and the, and the fall of Eden or the fall of Atlantis as we were describing it. And then he, you know, sort of got into the topic of the, the Ark of Noah. And I, I assume it is connected to the, the, the other Ark he was talking about this, you know, throne or this box of, uh, of power, whatever it was. Uh, I think that that's somehow connected to the Ark, the Ark of Noah too. There's in some way the same thing. So, uh, and he talks about how he tried to save Eve. He's, uh, I guess, you know, literally tried to keep her alive. Oh, he talked about, he used the term live water. Uh, And then he said, oh, he said Adam's body was on board the ark, his dead body, which as I I researched later, there's a tradition about that. Go ahead. That's so interesting. I'd never run across that before, ever, until I read your book. And then, you know, a lot of these, the things that he told me back then, I didn't even understand them very well until I wrote Clock Shavings, because you can sort of tell how it came together, too, as you read it. I think you can tell. Like, I I wrote down what happened, the, the narrative of the story, as well as I could remember it, and I would explain things as I felt that I needed to to make the readers right. understand. So there's little parts where there's kind of an essay that tells you the meaning of things. But mostly it's a story, a narrative. But then the, the final chapter, uh, which is about, uh, like, it's over 100 pages long. I know that. It's like a third of the book. Uh, is, is my summation of things from my perspective today. And a lot of these things I hadn't 
really thought about in you know in ten years or so. And I and I went back through my transcripts of all these Ouija board sessions, and that's when a lot of my understanding came. So the story about the the fall of Eden. Really, I didn't understand it, and I, I wouldn't claim that I fully understand it now. It's one of those mysteries. Probably no one ever will, but uh, my perspective on it now is just so much deeper. So the whole thing makes a lot more sense because, really, um, there are a lot of traditions about uh, the fall of Eden, except and that almost all of it was destroyed except for what they call the supernal Eden. The, uh, the Golden Dawn has this whole tradition about the supernal Eden and how, basically, um, there... In Eden, there's this tree that, uh, you know, the tree of life, it has this fruit. And somehow the, the fruit uh, enables people to live forever. And, uh, you know, the, the whole story that you find in the, in the Bible really says this. It says that, you know, after Adam and Eve ate the fruit of knowledge, God or the gods, because uh, it shows God talking to someone, whoever they, those beings were. God is saying to whoever uh, that, oh, no, now they, uh, they've they eaten the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And um, the next thing you know, they're going to eat from the tree of life, too. And they'll be able to live forever. And then nothing will uh, be impossible for them. And he finds this right, threatening. Right. And so in order to prevent that from happening, he creates whatever this is, something called the flaming sword. And it says that it turns every way around the tree of life. So I kind of imagined it as like a laser beam or something. Uh, surrounding yeah. the tree of life, and it would cut you in half if you tried to reach across <laughs> it. So uh, it could be that I don't know, but it's some. It seems like it's some kind of imp- impenetrable chasm or force field that protects this uh, object, whatever it is, the tree of life, that actually gives people the ability to live forever. Um, well, it turns out there's lots of traditions about this very thing, and so I went through a lot of them in the in the final chapter of the book. Uh, and it seems like that, you know, the, I guess my point is just that there, there really is this supposed throne of Eden. There's this treasure that, uh, that is very empowering if you can have it, you know, it, it'll even give you eternal life, but it's been barred from us. It's, we, we've, it's been hidden from us, so we can't see it. And it's also been hidden from, uh, Cain and all of his cohorts because it, okay Cain told us that he was speaking to us from the center of the earth and the underworld and so he was really in hell basically but but uh, he didn't describe himself at the time as being tortured it was more like he said he was in a um de- a death-like sleep he was kind of in a coffin and he was sort of speaking to us in his dreams and uh in fact, I, I did some research subsequently, uh, recently, in fact, and found out that um, there's lots of uh, myths about gods like that. Like there's a story about Kronos or, or um, Saturn, that he's asleep on an island and he's talking to people through his dreams and he's there being punished by Zeus. Uh, so many yeah. similar things across so many different mythologies and so many different cultures. Yeah, and, that's what I was going to say, especially like a lot of the uh, Old Testament stories they seem to kind of pop up all over like you know every other advanced ancient culture that that we know about mhm so yeah i mean the fact that i can you know 10 years later go back and look at these things that i totally forgot about you know there there's just so many details that i forgot about until i looked at the transcripts again the fact that i can go back 
and look at it again and find all of these correlations that I, I didn't even know about at the time. Uh, just again says to me, well, this was a very real contact that I made with something. Uh, and it gave me some very real information. And real in the sense that it, it's something to work with. Now, I've gotten, since I started, you know, since I published this book and started doing interviews, sometimes I get these interviews that are really painful to uh, to conduct because people just want to keep drilling me about talking talking to what they consider demons. In fact, later I, I definitely was talking to demons. Um, and they're just like, well, you know, you can't believe what they say and... Uh, that may be true, but um, but they're giving me something to work with here. And also, I think that my contact with these beings is basically about as genuine as anyone has ever had. You know, in other words, what I, I, I made a joke earlier and said you could build a religion off of the information I got. Well, you really could. And in fact, there's yeah. religions that are built off of much less. And, uh, you know, so I, th I think that, uh, you know, at, now I have no desire to do such a thing, but... Um, the stuff that I've got here is some really good stuff, I think, is what my point, <laughs> I guess. Um, well, Kane puts you in touch. Well, I believe that he he only takes you uh, in your line of questioning so far, and he puts you in touch with another entity. That's right. And that entity, we've already kind of mentioned, is, is Baphomet. Yes. And that all started... The, the conversation where we got referred to Baphomet had to do with... Um, we felt like we, Brian and I felt like we were cursed because we were having problems with money that seemed weird, you know, just like more than what the average person would have to face. And like th things would just keep going wrong for us. We, we would have uh, things lined up and then something would, you know, the, the rug would be pulled out from under us all of a sudden. And so we just got to feeling like, well, there's something metaphysical about this. And hey, we, you know, we know how to talk to, uh, spirits, so why don't we just find out if they can see anything that we can't see from our own perspective? And so we asked Cain if we were cursed, and sure enough, uh, he says that we are. Uh, we asked, well, who cursed us? I'm thinking, you know, one of these jerks on the internet that hates me. Maybe they did a magic ritual <laughs> to curse me. But he says, no, it was Baphomet, at which oh. I was. I st jumped out of my skin. I was like, what do you mean by that? Because I knew, I had heard the name, of course. I, I knew that uh, the Templars, you know, were associated with this being called Baphomet. I knew it was, uh, they they used this idol of a head or a skull. That was their contact point that they used to uh, do to contact Baphomet and do rituals to him. And I knew that uh, Eliphas Levi had, you know, who was a, a, an occultist in the 1800s, he had written a book and published an image of Baphomet where which has become the famous image now i think right right and so that shows him as actually a a, a hermaphroditic human with a goat head uh so these things i sort of knew and i'd written about a little bit but really hadn't thought much about baphomet he wasn't on my mind at all so it was a surprise wasn't that what marilyn manson was trying to do in the, like the late 90s <laughs> uh be hermaphrodite with a goat head maybe yeah <laughs> <laughs> well, he had that. He had that. He had that time where he had like he had like fake breasts or something. So was, mm -hmm. that that did make me think of Baphomet a little bit. Well, you know, yeah, Marilyn Manson was in the Church of Satan, and uh, yeah. the Church of Satan sort of revived the subject of Baphomet, but they prefer to use the name Satan. 
so they, they mention Baphomet and they use the sigil of Baphomet with a goat's head, but most of their rituals just use the word Satan. And I'm not, and, uh, you know, most people conflate the two and I don't think they're wrong necessarily. It's just, I, I see Baphomet as sort of a particular intelligence, uh, more specific than Satan. But anyways, uh, yeah, so Baphomet, you know, I, I find out that he or it has cursed us. And so, you know, we just got, got right to the point and called up Baphomet on the boards (laughs) to find out, Hey, what's the problem here, dude? (laughs) Uh, Nothing ever started smoking or any portals started opening up when you did this. I mean, it was just, things are pretty normal all throughout. You know, other than some candles flickering and, you know, uh, maybe a a sensation down your spine every now and then, we didn't get any physical manifestations, but then again, we weren't asking for it. There was No gateways to hell or anything. (laughs) So how do you approach questioning an ancient demonic presence asking <laughs> yeah. it if it cursed you like <laughs> we just it's all on video actually if you go to youtube our first conversation with baphomet i believe is up there already so really? you can see how okay. the how it happened and we oh. were just uh, straightforward with it you know um i just talk to these beings normally with the assumption that they have enough perspective from where they are to be able to interpret to some extent the words that i'm saying so I just spoke to them normally. I said, hi, you know, who are you? And, or, and uh, we've heard that you've cursed us. Is that true? And so, yeah, then we got some information. Why did he, why? Oh, yeah, that's right. Baphomet said he had cursed us because we, I had promised another author, a guy named Nicholas Devere. I had promised him that I would help him publish one of his books. And then I forgot about it or didn't care that much. And so I put it on the back burner, was busy with other things. And Baphomet comes and says to us that that's the problem. You you need to put publish Devere's book. Actually, first thing he said was, you need to publish a book. And I'm like, what book? Because uh, I was working on three different books at the time. And he's yeah. Devere's book. And, and I thought, why why do I have to publish someone else's book? What about mine? But no, that was what <laughs> it was. He cared so much about this book and was angry with me that I hadn't put it out yet. And from what I could tell, from what he was saying, it sounded like, well, maybe he had orchestrated the whole thing. Maybe he had put me in touch with Devere. And maybe, you know, that's what he'd been pushing me to do all along. And so... You know, I I was I took this seriously, and I did actually publish or help uh, Devere publish his book to try to alleviate this curse. And also, the funny thing was when I told Nick, uh, the the author, what, about this conversation, he didn't seem all that surprised. <laughs> That's another conversation, I suppose. But Nicholas Devere, I think, uh, uh. was also connected to Baphomet and was writing a whole he was writing a whole book about this bloodline, and he was writing from the perspective of someone who's a member of these witchcraft families I was describing. So, you know, Baphomet cared about that work. He cared about it a lot and really wanted it published. Um, and then, but so anyway, so that put us in contact with Baphomet. And at that point, uh, I would say our research and understanding of the, the esoteric topics we were looking into expanded even greater. At that point, I would, I really felt like I, I was, in an esoteric school where the teacher was a spirit and it was really cool because it was like joining, you know, one of the highest secret societies without having to be invited by a human. Um, you know, that uh, my initiation was when I 
spoke to Baphomet on the Ouija board. That's what sparked the whole thing. And from that point on, my education in the whole subject, I would say, just really took a quantum leap. And uh, so that's why I, I would honestly say that's why I'm no longer, I wouldn't say I'm an expert on the Grail subject and that's what I do. You know, I would say gotcha. I have a much broader perspective now because everything just took off at that point. And so now I, I actually, I compare it in the book to in clock shavings. I mentioned this concept of the Sholomance, which comes from Bram Stoker's novel about Dracula. And in, in that novel, he says that, uh, you know, Dracula runs this school where actually the headmaster is really the devil himself. And 13 pupils are invited every year to come, and only one of them graduates. And when you graduate, you get to, quote, ride the dragon. And uh, then you, you yourself become like a permanent fixture in the school. Um, and so I felt like that's what it was in a way, you know, I was, I had joined the show events. I was being instructed directly by, you know, someone that some people call the devil. And, but at that, you know, funnily enough at the time, I didn't feel like he was the devil. You know, sometimes there were, I, I understood, you know, the darkness, I guess, uh, that surrounded Baphomet, but I was coming at it from, I guess, a different perspective. So, because Baphomet, in a way, you know, yes, he's the devil, but he's like the alchemical devil. <laughs> he's the, uh, he represents this force that's kind of beyond everything. You know, it's transcend- transcendent. So he is a hermaphrodite. And I just say he is, is just, a, you know, an easier way of speaking. He's, he's not a he. In fact, when we were, uh, when Cain talked about Baphomet on the board, Cain referred to it as a she. Yeah. So, but I just say he just, you know, so I don't have to think about it too hard when I'm talking. Well, uh, with a name like Baphomet, I mean, it'd be hard to kind of not refer to him as a he. It's a very masculine sounding name. I guess, but probably in the French it did because <laughs> it was Baphomet, I think. Baphomet, yeah. <laughs> But anyway, um, yeah. Isn't there a link to the, the whole concept of Bapho, Baphomet uh, to it being a, almost like a mistranslation of the word Sophia? Well, not a mistranslation. It's like uh, some some people have had the theory that it was um, a cipher, you know, a cryptic way of saying Sophia. Right. So, um, well, and I think that there may be something to that because um, the the cipher that has been used to turn the word Baphomet into Sophia, the one that's being theorized about by people who write about that subject, is called the Atbash cipher. And yeah. I only found out about it accidentally, what it, what Atbash cipher really is. I had read that word, but I didn't know what it was. Um, well, it turns out, okay, Cain, in my, in my dealings with Cain, before he even referred us to Baphomet, he started doing this thing where he would visit every single letter on the board uh, by going from A to Z and then B to Y. And he would go from N to N like that until he'd worked his way to the middle. So inverting the alphabet, really. And uh, <coughs> and we thought there was some sort of meaning to this. We threw all sorts of theories at him to try to uh, tease out the meaning of it. And, uh, you know, we just, still, we just thought it was a mystical idea that he was teaching us about transcendentalism and transcending duality. And I don't know. It, it was some sort of alchemical secret, we thought. 
Um, and we even took the, well, my husband, uh, became my husband, Brian on inspiration one night, he redesigned our whole Ouija board. And, you know, originally we had a Parker brothers board and one night I wake up in the middle of the night to find him on the computer and he's designing a new Ouija board. And, uh, it had all sorts of new symbols on it. Interesting things. All, all of it derived from the conversations we'd had with Kane and Baphomet. And, uh, when he came to the alphabet, he actually, uh, put it in a wheel in a circle and arranged it so that it was just like this, um, this alphabet inversion that I had just described. So Z was on the opposite side of the wheel to A. And, uh, and so, sorry, I had to check on my son there. I think he just woke up. Um, anyway, so it turns out this arrangement of the alphabet is the Atbash cipher. And I only found that out like a year after he had designed the Ouija board. So Kane and, and Baphomet were both giving wow. us the Atbash cipher, and we didn't know it. <laughs> and that, wow. yeah, that is how you turn the word <laughs> uh, Baphomet into Sophia, which means uh, divine wisdom. Yeah. And um, other interesting things connected to Baphomet and Sophia, okay, uh, one of the things we asked Baphomet is, you know, are you a head or, you know, wh- we asked, what is Baphomet? He said, head. Uh, and so we said, okay, so you really are this skull that was worshipped by the Templars. He says, yes. Which skull? John. And th- that's what he said. John. And so it's a, it's the skull of John the Baptist, which is one of the theories that's been around, that the Templars actually had John the Baptist's head, and they used it to right. as, a, as a ritual device to contact Baphomet. Um, <laughs> and then so we ask, well, where is the head now? And he said, Istanbul. And again, of course, we didn't know it at the time. Years later, I researched the thing, and turns out that there is a skull of John that's on display even now in the, uh, how do you pronounce this? Um, I'm going to mispr- mispronounce it, but it's the Church of the Sophia, the, the uh, Divine Wisdom Church that's in uh, Istanbul. Yeah, the Hagia Sophia. Yeah, yeah. but I, you're not supposed to pronounce the H, and I can't remember how, how yeah. exactly you're supposed to say it. Uh, anyway, um, so the, and this this church is amazing. Even now, it's it's beautiful, but it's uh, apparently been rebuilt. Uh, you know, the the first version of it got sacked amazingly by Christian crusaders. Right, <laughs> and, right, right. Uh, so there's a. I, I subsequently uh, wrote a book called Solomon's Treasure, which was about mainly was like about the esoteric history of money. Uh, and in that book, I talked a lot about Baphomet because I felt like Baphomet had been a big influence on the history of money. You know, the whole thing started with the Templars inventing a credit system, the first credit system, really, the, or in, the first international credit system that was used by pilgrims who were uh, visiting the Holy Land. And, you know, really, historically, this is how banking started. Everyone kind of traces it back to the Templars. And this is how they were able to build such a huge empire. This is really how they became wealthy. Um, and so if you think about it, they say that it was Baphomet that, uh, that taught them wisdom and enabled them to become wealthy. Well, maybe somehow he taught them this whole secret of, uh, of banking, which as I described in Solomon's treasure is like alchemy. And it's, it's a confidence trick, really. It's a, it's a magical act really, because it's about, um, using magical symbols, which are on all the money. Uh, and using the the faith that people have in their government um, 
to transform something that on its face has no value into something that rep- that does have value and represents value and can be used to trade value. And then you can you can loan it out and actually come, you know, create value out of nothing by getting paid back for that and and getting paid back with interest. Definitely so, a magical working there for sure. Yeah, and there's more aspects too. There's more more right. uh, alchemical tricks you can do with the money uh as I describe in the book, but uh yeah, so I I think that Baphomet, you know, might have been the inspiration for that. Also in that book, I, I talk about the history of Constantinople a little bit and and Istanbul and uh, the, the Church of Sophia. Because I kind of thought as I was going through the history of money, I also noticed how certain uh, places would become the sort of economic center of the world uh, as history moves on. You know, the, the it's almost like the ring of power gets moved from one place to another and that <laughs> place becomes the the economic center and so for a while um you know byzantium was really where it was at <laughs> in the world and yes. uh is, is or constantinople was the center of it mm. so um i feel like at one point it was like the grail was there basically that was my theory it's like the, there's this thing this power that enables civilizations to rise and when it leaves them they fall and uh that the Templars may have at some point get, been able to hold that power through their contact with Baphomet. And so that so, since then, other groups and other people have been able to contact and utilize that power via the, you know, Baphomet as a um, intermediary, I guess. And so I think that's kind of why Baphomet is portrayed as being this um, transcendental power. It's all in the way that, Eliphas Levi describes the concept of Baphomet. It's like this: this is the uh, transcendental power of alchemy. Baphomet is the embodiment of it. So uh, he is the the thing that changes something during a magic ritual. And I want to ask Tracy. Yeah, um, go ahead. Not not to get too um, too much sidetracked on this, but you know the knights. It's generally said that the Freemasons are the um, successors to the Knights Templar. Yes. And if that's true, then is it possible that these groups, these secret societies that are out there now, that they have this power that they do because of that link to Baphomet? Yeah, I would say so, that that's how the Freemasons that were involved and integral in uh, starting, you know, what eventually became the United States... Uh, I would say that they were utilizing that power and utilizing the inspiration that came to them from that entity. Um, and then I would say that now I don't think it's the Freemasons anymore, or it may be a group or an organization that's based on a similar kind of framework and is maybe carrying, you know, has hold of the power now, this ring of power that we're talking about, the grail. But I don't think the word mis- Freemason necessarily applies anymore. Or maybe it's, maybe I'm saying that yeah. just because like there's, there's so many Masonic lodges and uh, so many different groups and surely the majority of them aren't anywhere close to the ring of power, you know? Uh, and with, no, I, oh, would, I would agree with you on that. Yeah. So, you know, it's not, uh, yeah. Who, who these people are really now who are in control of things I think it's still a mystery. I don't think anyone knows. I haven't heard anything 
convincing. Um, I think that some of the characters that get described in conspiracy literature are probably close to it or they're playing a role, but it's, yeah, it's really hard to tell who, who has it now. So, uh, and I know that sounds like kind of a cop out, but basically what I'm saying is I think that international finance now, it's very difficult to say who's in control because it used to be that there was this global order um, that centered around the U S dollar. And I, as I described in Solomon's Treasure, I think that that was all inspired by, uh, you know, originally Freemasons uh, working with Baphometic currents, and then, and then that system that they built. Um, I mean, I don't think that the founding fathers envisioned or wanted necessarily to create the Federal Reserve System, but I think that the Federal Reserve System was eventually created by people who understood these principles of alchemy, and they were using the framework of the, I would say, I guess what I'm saying is the United States government, the way it, uh, what it, what it evolved into was, became the, the right uh, vessel for them to use to, um, to, to use alchemical secrets to then expand the power of the United States throughout the world with the U.S. dollar. Now, uh, these days, uh, it's clear to me that that is changing. It may not be through changing yet. It's still in the process, and we don't know what it's changing into. But that system is coming apart. It's it's ending. And, you know, right now you've got uh, other world mm-hmm. powers trying to fill that vacuum. Uh, you know, you've got Russia um, trying to form alliances with China and Iran and other groups to just create another system of international finance. And um, I don't know what's going to come of that. I mean, it seems it, it seems every year uh, we're more and more looming on the edge of some sort of vast international conflict, you know, another world war, perhaps. And that may be what has to happen for us to see what the next stage is. And, and maybe only after the next world war will we really see where the ring of power has moved to. And actually along those same lines, it's a really nice segue to what I was going to ask you uh, next, which is um, what did Baphomet, that there was some communication from Baphomet and you actually were, you actually had Satan, you're talking to Satan on the Ouija board as well. And there was some talk about the end of days. Oh yeah. Quite a lot. Um, And this is some of the scarier stuff in the book. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. (laughs) I would say even now it scares me. And and even now we're still getting messages about it because really, uh, well, yeah, in the, in the book, I kind of talk about how we closed down the, the order laps at actualists, which was our secret society. But yeah. uh, and then I didn't do a lot of divination for a few years, but I have resumed it, and it really kind of continued uh, without a hitch. You know, we were able to pick up the same conversations with the same entities uh, without any trouble. And and I, by we, I mean I'm even working with different people, and I've even ha- sometimes had sessions where I had other people on the board that were not that didn't know the history at all. They didn't know any of the terminology or any of the conversations we've had in the past. I'm standing in the room, but not with, with my hands, not on the board. Other people are operating it. I can question the entity and I'll get an answer 
that uses code words, like things that those, the people operating the board wouldn't know. So obviously the spirit, you know, is still there, still talking to us, and we'll talk to, we'll use the hands of whoever I choose to be on the board. And so even recently, we've been getting messages about the end of days. In fact, I did some of this stuff live on uh, international or national radio on the Clyde Lewis show on Halloween. And talked oh, about, really? uh, really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I um, talked about this idea that um, there are poles holding up the heavens, which is a uh, basically an archetype that you find in every uh, ancient culture that there are poles that hold up the worlds and a mountain is often the uh, symbol of the pole. So, you know, the mountain's peak reaches high up into heaven and the mountain itself is holding up the heavens, separating it from earth, which is necessary. It, you know, life could not continue if the heavens were not being separated from earth constantly. And, uh, you know, also it says that um, usually the, the way these myths go is that, the, the underworld is ac- accessed by caves that are inside of this mountain. So it's this axis that's running through heaven, earth, and hell. And the mountain is holding up the heavens or hold, holding that burden. It's like at- Atlas holding up the heavens. And uh, <clears throat> if something were to happen to that mountain or that pole, theoretically, then the uh, worlds would collide together and chaos would ensue. Uh, existence as we know it would not continue. It would be something else. And the way I view it, it's like literal chaos, like the atoms splitting apart and the time and space as we know it ending. Uh, well, that's kind of what Baphomet, in fact, wow. uh, has indicated. <laughs> and that uh, we Sounds also like talked fun. to Kane about this, too. So... The idea is there's these beings trapped in the underworld that have always wanted to come out. They're, they've been trapped there since this event happened that Cain described to us with the Garden of Eden. Since the War of Rebellion, basically, uh, he and all these beings that, that were loyal to him got trapped in the abyss. And it's like literally jail. Um, and they they do deal with us, but they're dealing with us from the underworld, but they really wish that they could be alive. And uh, so that's why they're always uh, trying to possess people, for instance. That's why they want you to do magic rituals to allow them into your body so that they can experience life again through your, through you as the vessel. And, uh, and they really want this pole to be collapsed because that will let them out. And, you know, yes, there will be chaos, but, Actually, what Cain has described recently is this idea. Okay, I talked about the, the arc and how the, the arc, uh, the one box of things, gives you this power, this transcendental power over the whole you know, existence, I think. Um, and I, so it seems to me that what he's been describing, uh, how, how things will play at the end of days, really does kind of match up with what you see in Revelation because right. Revelation yeah. talks about, okay, Cain had said that he's inside of a box, kind of, or he describes a box, this ark box. Um, when they get let out of their prison, I think that they think they're somehow going to be able to uh, take charge of the ark. And, uh, you know, they'll be the pilots of the ark, in other words. They'll be able to 
uh, control existence or reality. They'll be in the seat of God, basically. And I think that that's what the, they, the, uh, the demons, are trying to do. In the book of Revelation, it talks about uh, the New Jerusalem being this cubic city that comes down from heaven and, and, and lands on earth and creates a new heaven on earth. And, uh, <coughs> and then what happens is basically all the righteous people are let inside of the cube. And they're the few, you know, the majority of people are not considered worthy to be inside there. And so the, the chosen few go in, they're given fruit from the tree of life, they're given the water of life from the rivers of life, and they get to live forever. And then everyone else is trapped on the outside of the cube, and they get consumed by the lake of fire. They basically are like, uh, you know, thrown into this chaos that I'm talking about. That's what I imagine is like everything around the cube falls apart into nothingness, really. And uh, so, you know, we all like to think that if we're good enough, uh, that God will reward us by letting us inside the cube. And I think that the demons are um, ambitious enough that they think they can force their way in and take over that way. So, interestingly enough, after I had these, after I wrote the book, Clock Shavings, and had had these recent sessions with Cain and Baphomet where they were telling me this kind of story, uh, I watched uh, Noah, the, the, the yeah. Ar- Ar- how do you pronounce his name? Aronofsky. 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 Yeah. Yeah, who, you know, when you look at all of his films and they're full of Kabbalism and mystical secrets. I mean, this guy is way into uh, Jewish mysticism, obviously. And Gnosticism, so, a lot of Gnosticism as well. Yes. And so there's this really interesting part, I think, where in, in that story, um, the Ark is built as this stationary thing uh, that then gets swept up by the waves. And uh, there's even the scene where Noah is explaining to his family how, you know, all of creation is inside of this box right now and everything out is, outside is chaos. It's been dissolved into nothingness. Uh, but as it turns out, one of the bad guys, one of the descendants of Cain, has snuck on board the ark, and he just yeah. stays there waiting the whole time until Noah's son has some uh, co- conflict issues, personality conflicts with his father. And at that point, uh, this this descendant of Cain, Tubal Cain, you know, ma- he uh, makes friends with Noah's son and convinces him you know you you really have to kill your father in order to uh to have what you want his father was uh, in the in the movie it's weird it's like noah's telling everyone that they have to uh just instead of procreating and building a new earth that they all have to just die uh <laughs> and yeah, so the, yeah. the son is rebelling against that idea and teams up with tubal cain to kill his own father and so he helps uh tubal cain uh, obtain a weapon and the tubal cane or any, he, he basically, uh, you know, kind of ushers his father into the harm's way where he's, he's besieged all of a sudden by tubal cane. He did, uh, Noah didn't even know this guy was on board the ark. And all of a sudden he comes at him with a knife. I think it was a knife, uh, and attacks him trying to kill him. And at that moment, uh, tubal cane, he thinks he's about to vanqu you know, win over Noah. And he says, as he's about to kill him, your women, your beasts, and the ark are all mine. And it's like he's 
he's representing the demons in this instance, I think. This is the idea really? that the descendants of Cain, huh. the demons, can penetrate the Ark, the Holy Ark, and take over that power and become the god, you know? Um, so anyway, I don't even know if Aronofsky really knew what he was doing there, or if that was just one of those things where people get inspired by the same uh, it, the same entities that I've been inspired it's, by. It's possible he may have. Um, also, the son is Ham, who I believe his great-grandson in the Bible is Nimrod, who would also be... A lot of people say that that's the he was the beginning of another world empire, yes. and that he was the same as Osiris. As there's some work that's been done in that. So Osiris, also Gilgamesh. Yeah, so I've heard it claimed that Nimrod there. is like the first master mason, according to some Masonic traditions. Yeah. Right. yeah. So uh, yeah, I think that uh, well, yeah, the Cainites really. Even, okay, even, even Tubal Cain itself is like a, a a password in Freemasonry. Definitely, I think that the Freemasons are tapping into this vein uh, of mysticism having to do with the Cainites. And, and what it is, basically, okay, Freemasonry is all about building, um, not just physically building buildings, but also um, mystically building uh, through magical processes, uh, inter- building reality, you know, creating reality, uh, Molding the energies in order to transform the universe around you. I th- I think that they're conducting ritual magic, and I don't think most of them even realize this, but I think that's really what they're doing. Uh, and some of them are conscious about it, and some of them are you know even right about what they're doing. So I think that um, the that sort of um, mysticism goes along with the tradition of the Canines, because the Canines were really what was said to be bad about them, and it, not just that their dad, you know, the, the forefather was a murderer, but also his descendants were the ones that invented metallurgy. They invented the first musical instruments. They invented, uh, you know, they, they uh, created from the metals that they discovered swords and axes. And uh, it's, it kind of seems like actually from the way Genesis describes them, that they were the inventors of, you know, most of what we would consider the arts of civilization in the beginning. Yeah. But it's all portrayed as the Book as of Enoch negative. says that they were taught by the fallen angels. I'm sorry, who was? Uh, the, the Book of Enoch. Right. Well, yeah, okay, so the Book of Enoch is really, it turns out these aren't contradictory ideas. The Book of Enoch is kind of just describing the same thing using slightly different terminology. So, yeah. uh, yeah, the fallen angels in the book of Enoch really correspond, I think, to the Cainites. And, uh, you know, it's impossible to j- just merge those two stories together because then you'll have conflicts with the characters. But, the you know, they're telling the same story using uh, different uh, symbolic elements. So, yeah, the, the basic idea is that the, there are these beings that have taught mankind how to build things and do things. This was the original wisdom we got from them. But uh, the way it's portrayed in the Bible, this was ultimately a negative influence because, you know, the swords and axes, we were able to kill each other with them. And the musical instruments supposedly had a negative influence by, you know, teaching people to be lewd and lascivious. People would become uh, promiscuous when they heard the music that the daughters of Cain would play on their instruments. 
Um, and they taught, you know, they all practiced magic, supposedly. They knew how to use the influence of the stars and the uh, how to mix different herbs and things like that to create magical potions. And so, you know, yeah, it was considered that the knowledge that the Knights have is negative uh, just because, you know, once you have this knowledge, you're able to do things both good and bad. So uh, I think the Freemasons are kind of continuing that tradition. You know, they have access to wisdom that can be considered dangerous. And that's really why they had to... That's really why all secret societies keep a lot of their wisdom secret is because, in you know, in the wrong hands, it's dangerous. And also it's dangerous for anyone else to know that they have it because they'll, you know, immediately be a target. So, yeah, yeah um, I think that the Freemason, I guess, long story short, I, I, it makes sense to me that uh, Freemasonry is actually continuing sort of the traditions of the Canaanites. In, in the time we have left, um, I, I want to talk a little bit about you have a theory about Rennes-le-Chateau and that area in France. And uh, some people have said that, you know, that's where Jesus is buried. Um, there's been a whole lot of other theories, but, but your theory is, and I think it fits in great with what you've talked about with Cain being in a box yeah. and he's communicating with everybody is that you believe that, that it's possibly Cain that is actually buried in that area. Yeah. Well, the story that Cain told us is that, all right, Henry Lincoln, one of those authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail, uh, what he right. spent the last, you know, two decades really writing about was just this one tiny, seemingly tiny aspect of the whole mystery, which is that when you look at a map of the area, there's these five mountains that surround the village that are actually sort of equidistant to each other or their peaks are. And when you, when you uh, draw lines connecting them, it forms this perfect pentagram. And it's kind of amazing. There's really not anything like it on, you know, on the rest of the surface of the planet. And so, uh, you know, Henry Lincoln was just theorizing, well, it's this amazing coincidence. And so that's why uh, this is the center of mystery in the area. That's why there's so many people who find it to be a mystical place is that uh, there's just this amazing natural phenomenon there. Well, so I theorized and then, you know, after asking Kane, uh, found it. You know, he was at least willing to back it up that maybe these aren't natural mountains, you know, and maybe the reason why they're uh, able to be so perfectly aligned with each other is because there's actually something that was, you know, artificially built underneath them. And which is not, again, uh, unheard of in archaeology. A lot of times, you know, they'll they'll, uh, find something, a hill or a, a patch of dirt that looks a little bit odd and they dig and sure enough, they find a, a pyramid or some kind of ancient temple under there. So, right. um, again, you know, I'm no geologist. <laughs> I don't know, uh, you know, if, if my theory has already been disproven or what, but, um, it was just an idea I had. So I asked Kane and sure enough, he says that yes, there's a vast temple underneath Rinle Chateau. These five peaks are like the five, you know, maybe pyramids or ziggurats that the whole comp is, you know, form the whole complex. He says underneath it, there's a gigantic um, necropolis of, uh, you know, important personages going all the way back to Cain himself and uh, some of the other characters in the, those stories in the Bible. So um, that may very well be the physical location he was speaking to us from and or there, 
he said he's uh, in the center of the earth. Maybe there's an entrance from one of those mountains that actually goes all the way down there. And uh, when we asked him who had built this thing, he said Dagon, D-A-G-O-N, which was a fish god uh, worshipped by the Philistines. It's mentioned in the Bible. And to me, that uh, corresponds basically with the idea of the Kinnatar. Because we talked about right. the, the the sea creature that's spawned the Merovingians, supposedly. Well, kin, you know, Latinized, would indicate the number five. So you could think of it as like a five-horned creature. And maybe that is somehow reflected by the fact that there's these five peaks and this, uh, you know, what may be an actual temple complex built supposedly by Dagon. So, yeah, Dagon, I presume, is some kind of ancient uh, creature or personage. And I still haven't, you know, decided whether these uh, these beings, when they were physically present on Earth, were they human or did they resemble humans? Were they giants like the, the Bible says? I don't know. But if something is able to build a, a temple complex that looks, you know, like a, a set of five mountains... I would say whatever whoever built that, you know, has pretty fantastic powers. So you know whether it's a, a magician with the ability to mold uh, mold matter in some sort of fantastic way. I suppose that's possible. Or maybe that creature is just so big that they can move things around like that. So maybe they're when we're talking about giants, maybe they're really big giants. I don't know. Yeah, there there is a whole thing right now, especially kind of like as I mentioned before with the fringe uh, Christian groups that a lot of people let talk about Nephilim and, and that's like a, that's, that's like a big thing Yes, <laughs> in some, some Christian circles. I'm sure you're aware of it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, we, I, the reason why you mentioned at the beginning, how uh, you tried to get me on the air or uh, on your show before. And I just told you, you know, gosh, I'm too busy now. And the reason why I'm busy is because I'm producing the show with Clyde Lewis now uh, called ground zero. It's this radio yeah. show that's national. And, uh, you know, man, that takes up a lot of my time because we're doing five hours of radio every night. And, well, I can imagine, uh, yeah. And so, but I brought it up because, like, every time we talk about aliens, basically all of our phone lines, and we have six of them, will be flooded with Christians who just want to tell us, that, by the way, the aliens are all demons. And, you know, and then they want to talk about Genesis 6. And, yeah. you know, I'm not saying they're necessarily wrong. Certainly everything, every um, contact I have had seems to point to that possibility. But still, uh, you know, I, it's maybe kind of a simplistic way of uh, interpreting it. I think that the, everything that I've experienced just tells me that this, this uh, universe that we're in is so complicated and so big. And even what we can see with our telescopes is just a tiny part of it, you know. And, the, and But luckily, we do have other senses besides the five. And so that is really the only way that we can obtain any information. If you want to call it information, that's the only way we can get any kind of contact about, you know, what's beyond. So um, I, that's why I, I feel like even though it's an imperfect science, or it's not a science at all, really, um, it's still useful because I've gotten... What I get is inspiration and clues in my research from doing this, and it uh, just shows me a different way of looking at things and uh, then gives me 
ideas about where where to go with my research. And so, yeah, like I said, I don't always take what the spirits tell me at, t- at face value, and, and I don't always agree with them. But sometimes I get useful information that way. So uh, I think it's it's a kind of a, a cool research tool, and I'll probably still use it in the future. Well, some of the, some of the things that you that you that we have talked about, um, I mean, fit very well in in that camp of just the bafflement and and um cane and these different aspects that are very similar to to some of the stuff that is that people will talk about in those christian fields oh yeah for sure i mean i don't i don't necessarily think they're wrong it's just um i think that everyone everyone has a narrow perspective you know no no one's really looking yeah. at the big picture so <laughs> a yeah. thing too is like is there really a separation between the idea of an alien and and a a demon um I don't necessarily think so because I think once right. you, once you're re- willing to entertain the idea of something being extraterrestrial then you've got to accept that you know, it's it's beyond beyond you you know uh so and is there any reason why some someone uh or something that happens to be located on the other side of the galaxy can't actually communicate with you and maybe the you know if they communicated with you they would seem really big or maybe they would um you wouldn't be able to physically see them, but maybe they could still influence your reality somehow. In other words, I think that there's, there's ways, uh, well, I know we're running out of time. Basically I'm saying that I don't think those two things are separate at all. And I think you could have a spiritual experience contacting an alien. I think that an alien could, uh, influence reality magically. I think that, um, the idea of time and space even is sort of illusory. So we think that, if we if we find a planet that's light years away and has something on it living, that doesn't mean we can't contact it or in, or that we're not influencing each other already. You know. Uh, anyway, I think these. I'm just saying. I think these things are so complicated, and that's why you know I'll probably yeah. just keep uh, keep keep looking into it because I'll never get bored. There'll always be more stuff to uh, research. Since I've started doing this show, I can tell you the, the different people that I've had on from many different viewpoints and from many different beliefs and many different points of view that it seems that sometimes that there there are labels that are put on different phenomenon mm-hmm. and but at the same but at the same time it could all be the same thing. It's just that as humans. We like to put things in categories. You know, this is a UFO phenomenon. This is a ghost phenomenon. This is a spirit communication phenomenon mm-hmm. or a Bigfoot phenomenon or, you know, cryptozoology. But in reality, it could be all the same phenomenon. And we're just we just look at it in our narrow point of view because we want to categorize it. Yeah, I think that's pretty much what's going on. Exactly. Well, uh, Tracy, just uh, real quick before we go, um, tell everybody where they can contact you and also uh, where everybody can uh, get your books. Well, uh, you can contact me and find tons of free articles and other information by going to tracyrtwyman.com or tracytwyman.com. And uh, even, okay, that's T-R-A-C-Y-T-W-Y-M-A-N. And uh, even if you forget how to spell it, you can probably sort of fake it and Google will correct you. And uh, <laughs> right, right. And my books uh, are all on Amazon. <laughs> and there's some that are only physical, there's some that are only digital, and then there's some that are both. So, well, uh, 
Thank you, Tracy, for coming on. We're just about out of time, but uh, stay on the line for us real quick. Um, and uh, we'll be right back on Conspiranormal. All right, thank you. All right, welcome back to Conspiranormal. Um, we are back. And that was quite an interview with Tracy Twyman. Uh, just, Rob, you just kind of sat there and intently listened. Uh, I think a, yeah, <laughs> a lot of it was Yeah, once kinda... again, I, I learned a whole lot of things. It's, that's usual, though. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, it really was. It really was fascinating. All the things that she was saying. The the book is fascinating too. I can't uh, recommend it enough. It's called Clock Shavings. Um, like I said, I'd heard her on a show called The Higher Side Chats, um, which is another really good show. That's probably a lot better than ours. <laughs> anyway, and I thought, you know, this is just perfect. This is just perfect material for for our show, and especially some of the stuff that we have talked about. Uh, I, I look at it, you know, I'll have to look at it, look at kind of my own kind of Christian bias and kind of things that I've, that, that I've studied and other guests that we've had on. I, I would look at it as, well, she was probably communicating with like, with fallen angels possibly. Um, I've always wondered too, with those kind of spirits, whether they're just telling you what you want to hear, because they probably do know things that you're going to, that you're not going to know, because they probably do have an intelligence that's uh, vastly superior to ours, uh, and they could see a little bit further out than, well, than we can. And not only that, if they have, I mean, they're obviously intelligent beings, and they also have an agenda. Right. I mean, they're not just going to hook yeah. you up because they're bored and have nobody to talk to. <laughs> Yeah, they have an agenda. They have an agenda all their own, um, and they probably are still around. I would refer people back uh, to our interview with Stephen Lachance. I think it was, I want to say, episode fifty nine. This was back last in September, and this was basically talking about some of the hauntings uh, experiences that he had had, and how he eventually equated it to these people that were actually worshiping fallen angels. And they actually conjured one up onto that land. Uh, so, very interesting things in that interview. The whole Priory of Scion mythos, the whole Merovingian mythos. Uh, we get some of your thoughts on that. You know, someone that's maybe not heard a lot of that kind of stuff, um, Rob. Right, well, like... Like I was saying during the break there, I've, I've heard of the Knights Templar, and I've read right. some of the, the Dan Brown stuff, um, Da Vinci Code. And I know that was a lot, it was more fictional, but it was a similar plot based on, on uh, what was the name of that book? It was big in the 80s you guys were talking about. Um, uh, Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, That was a book that I read back in, oh God, I read that thing in high school. I think I read that thing like three times. I don't necessarily buy into it anymore. This whole idea that that Jesus was married—that's uh, like a whole other show, man. We could do like a whole show <laughs> on that. I mean, really, all the different kind of controversies, uh, uh, where exactly that that comes from? Uh, does it come from anything? Is it based on any kind of real real basis? Um, it, you know, there was a guy that I met that was, man, I want to say he was like Church of God. This was the whole time when the Da Vinci Code movie was out, and we were actually talking about it. And he, you know, this guy's a this guy was a Christian, and he was like, "Well, I don't have a problem with Jesus being married." And 
he was going through all the theological reasons as to why he didn't have a problem with it and and you know it that is something that uh, people have some sensitivity to especially down here in the south right so, well and it, and it ties into a lot of like um you know there there was a, a period i think it was in the maybe 14 or 1500s where they went through and kind of made some little edits and stuff to to the bible and there's a lot of a lot of it had to do with making jesus seem less human and more more godly and i think a lot of it i can't remember who it was or what uh where it was i was reading there were several kind of edits and things that were done a lot of a lot of those a lot of that is said to have as we have the gospels now it says that it's that it's pretty much the same uh there were some things that were lost some of the persecutions of the early church but I don't think that there was anything that was really ever added to or ever really taken out. No, not not, not necessarily removed or, or, or withheld, but kind of the, the phrasings and stuff were all... There's some interesting things in the Nag Hammadi scroll, scrolls that are the... Those are the Gnostic Gospels right. that were found in Egypt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's some interesting things there, um, such as there's one where it actually describes Mary Magdalene as being Jesus's wife or being like think, think the translation is spouse. And there's something in there about like that he would kiss her on the mouth. And, uh, uh some of the things in the Gnostic gospels, the Gnostic, you know, there's a whole line of thought that says that, well, you know, the four gospels in the Bible, that they aren't true because, well, the first one was written in 60 something AD and Jesus died in the 30s AD. Uh, well, you know, the, it, you would have to apply the same, if, if you're going to apply that same uh, reasoning to it, you know, the Gnostic, some of the Gnostic Gospels were written like 200, even 300 years later. So they're not as, they're not as contemporary. Uh, like I said, that's just something, I, I don't know. At least there was no Holocaust denial. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. we, we actually got an email, and I want to read this real quick. Um, God didn't want me to tell his name, so I won't, but he has a story here, uh, which I found interesting. Uh, I'll tell you why here in a second. Adam, big fan of the show. I find you very funny and the co-host, too. Well, that would be Mr. Lukey. I was born in Chattanooga, which I don't know if he knows this, but I was also born in Chattanooga and grew up in Ringgold, Georgia. I'm a Christian, and to be up front with you, I believe when you die, you either go to hell or heaven, and you will be raised from your sleep when Jesus comes back. I know every denomination argues over that. With that said, I believe what you see and hear are demonic demons from hell. I understand everyone thinks different, not trying to change your mind or anyone else's mind. Uh, he may re- be referring to some shows we did a while back. Uh, I think one with um, Archbishop James Long, where we talked about the nature of ghosts, whether there's uh, demonic spirits or human entities, whether that uh, there's either one or the other. Also with Chris Putnam, we talked about that, so he might be referring to that. Uh, my later teen years, I was raised on a farm in Ringgold, Georgia. My dad sold it last year to an oral sur- surgeon that lived next door. This is where the story begins. Adam, I can't begin to tell you that I have ever seen anything ghostly in my life. However, my dad's house was built before the Civil War 
and through local legend and stories passed down from the old timers, it is said to be an old hospital or place where the soldiers came to get treatment. I can't document that, but just what I was told. The house stands in great shape today because before my dad sold it last year, he put thousands of dollars into it. So I'm going to assume that it will stand for years to come. One autumn cold night, I was awoken. I was sleeping downstairs in the master bedroom. It was around 2 or 3 in the morning. As you know, when you are awakened, your mind is not always fully aware of every detail and your eyes are blurry. I rose up from the bed and I hear like an old man and woman talking and maybe fighting. The noise was coming from the bedroom. It lasted about almost five or six seconds. That's enough time to hear things. Then as soon as it started, it stopped. Can I honestly tell you I heard voices coming from the fireplace upstairs? No, maybe I was too sleepy or dreaming. Anyway, we have three houses on the estate and the farmhouse stays empty most of the time. Well, my brother got a divorce and he moved into the farmhouse. So one night he could not sleep and he comes to my house and we talk just like regular brothers talk. And we talk about old times and such. Well, out of the blue, I tell him about the experience I had or what I thought I had heard in that house. After I tell him, he turns white and he looks at me and he tells me he's heard the same thing, but the huge difference is he hears them all the time. An old lady, a man fighting, and he heard them through the fireplace. Okay, I'm freaked out, so I change the subject and all is forgotten. So a year goes by. I move to Oklahoma because I work for the Department of Defense. And he calls me out of the blue and tells me what something strange has happened. Mind you, I haven't, I haven't, been, I haven't been gone a year, and we have spoke nothing about this since that night. He tells me that he went fishing with a friend on the property. Peavine Creek runs through it, so it's late and they are fishing. They have a fire and they have their chairs by the creek with, tr with trucks and dogs. All of a sudden, he looks down the pasture around 75 yards and he sees three creatures walking in a triangle. They would go every so many feet and exactly turn and sink or very hard turn and they would repeat that motion. Every few feet, the, all three would turn uh, walking in a triangle motion, never breaking stride. My brother said they had a body of a kangaroo and the head of a dog. All three looked the same. He then looked at his friend and got his gun and started to run after them. He said as soon as he made an attempt to shoot, they vanished. Now, Adam, did I witness this? No. Can I verify this for a fact? No. Did I honestly hear something from the fireplace? I can't say I did with all honesty. But my brother, did my brother and his friend lie about that fishing experience and what happened to him? I have no reason not to believe him and his friend. Like I said, I don't believe in a ghost whatsoever. I do believe there are demonic forces out there. The rest of the thing, there is no, nothing special about me and my family. We're just an average family. But if the day comes and you'd want to check it out, my brother lives by the park and he and I are very good friends with the owner. He would be glad to take you there. Yeah, so, very interesting. Uh, I really liked that email. I really appreciated it. Like I said, uh, you don't want to give the name. But... Uh, the part about the ghost was interesting, and the uh, part about the three figures with the, uh, yeah, that's the weird. body of a kangaroo <laughs> and the head of a dog. I've heard of that kind of stuff before, man. Uh, you know, I was listening to this interview, and as I listened to a lot of podcasts, and this was on uh, Darkness uh, Radio, and they were talking to this woman that she didn't want to say where she was, but it's somewhere here in the South. And she said she lives at the end of this cul de sac in the suburban neighborhood and she's been having like bigfoot experiences like them coming out and trashing stuff and she hears stuff in the woods and not only has she seen like bigfoot out in the woods but she's seen these like dog men out in the woods and 
you know, in this email, he talks about his brother shooting at these these creatures, and all of a sudden they just vanish. Yeah, that's pretty common uh, amongst a lot yeah, of yeah. cryptozoology it's, sightings. It's like if it's a physical creature, why would you just vanish? Right. So there must <clears throat> there must be something more going on. There must be something uh, you know spiritual going on there. I want to try to get on a try to get a Bigfoot expert on, and. Uh, you know, and talk and talk about some of these weird kind of crypto cryptozoology stuff. I think that would be pretty cool to do. Yeah, I'm into a lot of that. And then, yeah, you know, a lot of the um, a lot of people who try to discredit it are are looking at it more as um, you know, like a typical animal. Like, oh, there can't be a sustainable population because this sort of food source isn't here or there, or whatever. But yeah. you know, taking into account that maybe it's not a physical being kind of changes that whole. Yeah, it changes it a lot. And, and and it's almost like, you know, out in the West, okay, you've got, you know, Oregon, Washington, you know, California, you know, Northern California, there's a whole lot of forest. And there's a lot of area you could say, well, maybe, okay, you know, maybe Bigfoot could be out there. Maybe there could be something that lives out there because not a lot of that area is where people go. Right. And there's Indian legends out in that. Okay, so maybe that is an actual physical animal. Maybe. There's been a lot of hoaxes and a lot of ridiculous crap, like the 2008 hoax that happened with the, with the rubber suit, and then the yeah. same guy comes out last year and does the same thing. You know, so it just puts... But the further east you get into the eastern United States, the more bizarre and the more spectacular the encounters become. Right. Well, like, in Michigan, where I'm from, it's the dog man. Yeah. I think Wisconsin has the same yeah. sort of... Everything around Lake Michigan is those sort of, sort of same uh, mythologies. But. Yeah, yeah, they call it, the they call it like, the Beast of Bray Road. Yeah, that's the Wisconsin that's one. That's the Wisconsin one. Yeah, that's pretty... Do you have any, like, stories or anything? Like, like anybody said anything to no, you? No, I just... I, growing up, there was a song that was always on the radio every Halloween about it. That's basically yeah. the extent of my knowledge is that, but... You, you got to wonder sometimes, you know, there's this whole idea that we've talked about on the show before about uh, uh, this idea of tulpas, and um, we talked about it with, uh, we talked about it with John Tinney back at the end of last year, we talked about the whole Slender Man thing that's going on. Oh, right yeah. Now. You know, like those two uh, girls that killed, that tried to kill their friend because they were going to sacrifice her to Slender Man. What was that? We're talking about how belief can manifest. Can manifest physically. And apparently people are out there seeing Slender Man now. Right. And well, we know yeah. Slender Man is a fictional character. We know Slender Man was made up in 2009. It's not been that long. Right. But it's like it enters into... Uh, it enters into the consciousness. The collective. And, yeah, the collective unconsciousness. And then all of a sudden it, it becomes like this real thing. And we've talked about that with the black-eyed kids, too. But uh, I'm about ready to call it a night, because uh, Walking Dead's going to come on here pretty soon. <laughs> yeah. So, Apparently I have another podcast i got to go <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Rob's a busy man with all his, with his podcast production. But next week, or no, actually, two weeks from now, sorry. Well, next week for some people, depending on when you listen to the podcast, but we are going to Mars. Yes. We are going to have on Captain Key. Oh, Captain K. I apologize. And Captain K claims that he was a Marine that was stationed on Mars. 
and that he defended it from various different types of aliens. And this is going to be an interesting interview, and I don't really know what to expect. So, get ready to go to Mars, people, next week on Conspiranormal. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.